assassination makes vacancies. One man dies, but another gets promoted. This is how Hassan Nasrallah became Secretary General of Hezbollah, meaning Party of God. His predecessor, Abbas al-Musawi, was killed by an Israeli missile. When his own 18-year-old son faced a similar fate in battle, Hassan was triumphant. The Israeli might think he has achieved victory by killing the son of the Secretary General, he said, just hours after the announcement of his son's death to a crowd of tearful supporters. This can't be a victory for the enemy. It is a victory and a source of pride for Hezbollah and for the logic of resistance in Lebanon. A photo of him smiling over his son's casket circulates on some of the weirder corners of the internet. To post it means, try me. Some call him a terrorist, but terrorism is in the eye of the beholder. Others say he's a spiritual leader, a charlatan, a resistance fighter, a psychopath, or a shrewd state within the statesman, another corrupt politician. There is no doubt that he is an icon. His face graces keychains, coffee mugs, and refrigerator magnets. He smiles down on me every time I crack open a bottle of Almaza. Zero percent alcohol, of course. He has his own TV station. He lives in hiding, but don't we all? His father was a grocer. He was raised in eastern Beirut. The family was not especially religious, but he was. He told the Washington Post in 2006, When I was 10 or 11, my grandmother had a scarf. It was black, but a long one. I used to wrap it around my head and say to them that I'm a cleric. You need to pray behind me. When war broke out in 1975, his family fled the city for the south. Now 15, he joined the then-nascent Amal movement, which commanded an important militia during the Lebanese Civil War, and is currently the largest Shia party in parliament. Amal's founder was Iranian-born, a guy named Musa al-Sadr. He tapped into a festering resentment among Lebanese Shiites, not unfounded, that they were being politically oppressed and economically disadvantaged compared to other sects, namely Christians and Sunni Muslims. Hassan left for Najaf in southern Iraq to attend a prestigious seminary there. If you were an ambitious young Shiite in the 1960s and 70s, Najaf was the place to be. It's one of the holiest cities in Shia Islam, a pilgrimage site just behind Mecca and Medina in popularity. That's because this is where Ali, Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, was buried after his assassination in 661. Shiites believe that Ali was the Prophet's designated successor. So imagine, you've got dissidents and militants from all across the Arab world converging on this city of scholars and martyrs. And here's a young, pissed-off Hassan Nasrallah studying theology and going to lectures by Ruhollah Khomeini, who, by the way, spent most of his 14-year exile here. The atmosphere must have been thrilling. Najaf for Hassan was what Paris was for Hemingway, what Venice was for Byron. Khomeini's doctrine of Veliat Faki, excuse my Farsi, which he would soon put into practice following the Iranian Revolution in 1979, gives Shia clergy both religious and political authority over the state. This doctrine was highly influential to young Hassan, and to the organization he would one day lead. It's a key concept for understanding Iranian networks of power to this day. Another crucial ideologue hanging around Najaf at the time was Mohammad Bakir al-Sadr, 
an Iraqi-born philosopher who founded the Islamic Dawah Party. He is the cousin of Musa al-Sadr, founder of the Imam movement back in Lebanon, remember? Muhammad's works of Islamic political theology were no less than explosive. They critiqued both capitalism and socialism. His writings touched on almost every area of intellectual thought, and they formed the basis of modern Islamic banking. But he led a popular uprising against Saddam Hussein's regime, and for that, he would suffer. Now, for a brief tale of two solders. On August 25, 1978, Musa al-Sadr, this one was Amal's founder, traveled to Libya at the invitation of Muammar Gaddafi. He was last seen on the 31st of August, and then vanished, never to be heard from again. On April 9, 1980, Mohammed Bakir al-Sadr and his sister Amina were executed on orders from Saddam Hussein himself. Mohammed had an iron nail hammered into his head, and then his body set on fire. In between these two events, Hussein, himself a Sunni, began cracking down on that worrisome little Najaf renaissance, expelling hundreds of Shiites from the country. All right, party's over, boys, go home. Khomeini returned to Iran on February 1st, 1979, where he was greeted by a crowd of what the BBC estimated was 5 million people. Hassan went home to Lebanon and fought with Amal. He became the group's commander in the Bekaa Valley. But Amal had grown increasingly secular ever since Musa's disappearance, much to the disappointment of the group's more hardline Islamist members. A lane was left open for a new kind of militia and political organization, one that would fight harder and dirtier to restore the dignity of the dispossessed Shia people. When Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, Hassan ditched Amal to join Hezbollah, which ultimately became the Amal movement's bitter rival. He rose up through their ranks throughout the 1980s. He briefly moved to Qam, an Iranian city treasured as a center of Shia scholarship to further his religious education. When Israel sent a missile-laden helicopter to strike al-Musawi's motorcade, Hassan was promoted to Hezbollah's big boss. Hezbollah is often portrayed in the media and by Western governments as a puppet of Iranian leadership. But if you want to understand the mind of Hassan Nasrallah, you have to move beyond this conception, which is shallow and ahistorical. Both Hezbollah and the Iranian government post-revolution are the fruit of a transnational philosophical conviction that traces itself back to the Prophet himself. The seeds of it were planted in hostile soil in southern Iraq, uprooted by force and transplanted by faithful Shiites across the region. Under Hassan's leadership, Hezbollah established a wide array of social welfare programs that maintain his grassroots support. He is credited with success in several military conflicts with Israel, most notably the 2006 war. He remains a divisive figure, half-loved, half-loathed. Hezbollah is the world's most heavily armed non-state actor. Hassan commands that arsenal. He is now 61 years old. He has teddy bear brown eyes and a thick gray beard remarkably manicured. The black scarf he fantasized about wearing at age 10 is permanently secured atop his head. It is believed that his secret bunker is located somewhere in or near Beirut, but his exact whereabouts remain a source of mystery and speculation. 
to visit the man in wax, if not the flesh, will take a service cab, service, to Beirut's Kuwaiti embassy. From there, we'll take a van to a van to the bridge in Habush, where we'll negotiate a return taxi ride to and from Melita, home of the so-called Hezbollah Disneyland, and one-time strategic base for the group's fighters. Dress modestly, and don't be so dumb as to pay for anything with a credit card. Yalla, yalla! Come on, let's go! listening to Have We Met Before. My name is Kasia, and these are stories of people I can't forget. thought I was crazy for going, but visiting Melita had been a priority since coming to Lebanon. I wasn't totally clear on how I'd make it there, absent a car and a formal public transportation system. Any city or town along the Mediterranean was fairly wired. You could always walk back to M51 and find some bus or van headed back to Beirut, but penetrating into the country's interior was less reliable. Once I'd hit all the easier coastal spots, Saida, Sour, Harissa, Byblos, and Tripoli, I decided it was time to tackle the place that intrigued me most. When requiring a succession of informal transport links to and from a distant Lebanese locale, it's wise to make it as early a day as you can reasonably manage. So I woke up at 7am, put my hair up in a tight bun, donned a pair of jeans and a long-sleeved button-down shirt, selected according to the conservatism of my final destination, slugged a bottle of iron and was on my way. I tucked the scarf I'd bought to enter the mosques in Tripoli into my backpack in case I needed it. Luckily, I lived just one block over from Bashara el Khori, a main north-south drag that a lot of taxis plied constantly. I wouldn't have had to wait long. I made sure to say service, or service in an Arab-French accent, before anything else. If the driver nods, this means they've agreed to pick up other passengers along your route, so all of you only have to pay 2,000 lira each. Don't let the zeros fool you, that's $1.33 US. Not a bad price, if you don't mind walking a bit from a generic destination, to take you practically anywhere within Beirut city limits. Sifara al Kuwait. I said to the driver, expecting I'd have to repeat myself several times before being understood. When he gave me the go-ahead on the first try, I jumped into the back seat, feeling victorious. I tracked the little blue moving dot on my phone map the whole way towards the Kuwaiti embassy, less because I didn't trust the driver and more because I didn't trust my Arabic. I removed two 1,000 lira notes from my wallet and stuck them in my shirt pocket so I was ready for drop-off. 
No one wants to be the dumb foreigner that pulls out their wallet and sorts through their cash on the curb as a car full of Arabs impatiently wait while you try to figure out the country's currency. I was well past having the hang of this by then. I felt I was the reigning monarch of the service taxi underworld. I would never pay full price for a cab if I didn't have to. I'd gone to the Kuwait embassy because I'd read that there was supposed to be a minivan to Nabitye that left from there. If that van does, in fact, exist, I did not find it. I ended up in a van to Saida, and from there I'd have to connect to a different van to Nabatye. But you can't be too picky when you're traveling in Lebanon. Taxi drivers, van drivers, bus drivers, if they are empty, will do anything to scrounge up another passenger. That includes taking you on even if their route is not the most efficient for you. If they have one person, they want two. If they have two, they want three, and so on. But all these negotiations are taking place at the speed of light, in nods and grunts and phrases in Arabic, so you hardly have time to weigh your options. The van to Saida was friendly. There was one passenger sitting in the front seat when I got in, an older man who seemed to know the driver personally. They asked me where I was from, and I said, the U.S. Where in the U.S.? the passenger asked. He spoke pretty good English. Washington, D.C. They both genuflected like I really was the reigning monarch of the service taxi underworld. Strangely enough, the Middle East is one of the last bastions of sincere Uncle Sam worship in the world today. The passenger was Palestinian, but he beamed with pride as he told me that Washington was beautiful, and that he had visited once to receive a plaque from Human Rights Watch. Do you still have it? I asked. No, he said. I lost everything, everything, in a fire. Soon enough, a large family piled into the van along with several overstuffed bags of clothing. I moved to the back row and held a bag of their sparkly dresses on my lap. When you're in a van, you don't just share a ride, you share baggage. Ramadan had wrapped up a few days before, and kids often get fancy new clothes for Eid. This family must have come up to Beirut to celebrate the holiday, and they were now headed back home. It must have been their first chance to debrief the gathering. They bantered loudly and combatively the whole ride. I could figure out the role each one of them played in the overall family dynamic almost instantly. Something about not speaking a language makes certain points of understanding a lot easier. You're not distracted by the artifice of words. The essence of people and the truth of their relationships are unmediated and immediately broadcasted into your consciousness. When the family unloaded, the van driver swooped over to the seaside road to fill up with more people. This was always an effective tactic for gaining more passengers, but it does prolong the journey. He ended up running into more people he knew than people who needed a ride. He'd shout, Habibi! to seemingly every other person. The man had innumerable Habibis. And he'd idle to chat with passerbys that he knew especially well. How much happier they seemed greeting each other through the window of a moving car than they would be if they'd met on foot. There would not be half the amount of excitement and friendly affection between them. But because one was in motion, this lent the interaction a free son of transience. These meetings cheered me. They made the world feel neat, connected, benevolent. Even though I was alone in a foreign country, I could still feel myself ignited by others' signs of life and closeness. In fact, they sustained me. The driver dropped me off at a parking lot where all the vans going south or eastward mustered. 
He kept his word about getting me to Nabatea. He put me in the hands of a guy who was in charge of managing where everyone was going and which vehicle everyone got into. Nabatea, 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 the manager repeated as he led me through the crowd to an extra-large van with three rows in back. Jisrua Bush, I insisted, making sure that he knew I was just headed towards Nabatea. That wasn't my actual destination. Mm, Melita, he asked. I nodded, thankful that he understood. He warned me how much I should pay, 4,000 lira and no more. The nice thing about being a vulnerable young woman easy to take advantage of was that people recognized that and looked after you, advising you of how much things actually cost and so on. I believe I ended up being treated better than I would have if people did not think I was about to be scammed all the time. I was deposited in the back seat of a large van, where I waited for the better part of an hour for my departure time. For most of the wait, there was only one guy from Bangladesh in the front seat and a woman in a hijab seated in the front row. She refused to make eye contact with me, and I didn't want to crowd her by plopping down next to her, so I climbed to the next row back. There was an abandoned takeaway styrofoam left in that seat, though, so I moved even further back to the last row. The wait was unusually quiet. Usually there's people smoking, fighting, or the radio playing, so I pulled out a book and read for a while. It was leg over leg, the part where he lists all the euphemisms he can come up with for vagina. I felt slightly ashamed to be reading this seated so close to a woman in a headscarf. Minutes before we left, though, a sudden rush of people appeared, all Syrian workers, and filled the car to the brim. We were all squeezed in so tight that I had somebody's elbow jammed in my ribcage for the entire journey. One of the Syrians asked if the takeaway container was mine. When I said no, he opened the box and ate what was left of it with his fingers. When we got to the bridge in Habush, the van stopped and everyone turned around to look at me. I took that as my cue to leave. I was a little worried about finding a taxi driver once I got there, but I needn't have been. There was one standing uncomfortably close to my face before I even got both feet out of the van and down onto the pavement. Where are you going? He snarled. Melita. How much do you want to pay? 30,000, I said, or 15,000 one way. This was the recommendation in my brat travel guide. 20,000 one way, he countered. 15,000, I said again. No, it's very, very far, and I have to wait, he said. But I have this book, and it says that the price should be 15,000. This book is bullshit, he replied. Well, it got me this far. We go back and forth for a while until he says, Come on, let's go. This power move defeats me. As I climb into the car, I notice two other taxi drivers waiting by the bridge. If I had really wanted to drive a hard bargain, I could have defected to one of them. I'm sure it would have worked. 30,000 lira may be less than 40,000 lira, but it's certainly better than zero lira. I remind myself that life is only first draft quality. The taxi was falling apart. The upholstery on the driver's side was mostly gone. The seat was all foam and exposed metal. The passenger seat was a little better, but not much. I had to concede that maybe this guy needed the 10,000 lira, roughly seven US dollars, more than I did. I'm Hussein, he says, before starting the engine. After all, this is primarily a story about Hussein, not Hassan. I realized that he was waiting for me to say my name before starting the car. Oh, I'm Kasia. I say. You're what? He asks. Kasia. That's not American. You're American, right? Yes, American. 
So why is this your name? It's a long story. The car starts. The road to Melita from here is pretty hilly, and the car struggles with the inclines. Lean forward. It helps, he says, and I lean forward. I ask him how he speaks such good English, and he says it's because he worked in Australia for many years. Doing what? I asked. Laundryman. Hotel. Big hotel. Sydney. He asked if I liked Lebanon, and I said that I did. Why? he inquired, genuinely curious. It's exciting. I like the people. I like the culture. I like all the different communities that are here. I sounded like an imbecile, but that was the clearest way of putting it in the moment. The truth was, I didn't like Lebanon. I fucking loved Lebanon. But I was wary of saying so, because the fact of the matter was, I wasn't trapped here. And yet it was the most exhilarating place I had ever been. I loved the way the dialect sounded, dripping from people's lips like honey, how it made everything sound like poetry, the way every hair salon was filled with 20 teenage boys getting blowouts, the way a woman would give me a bag of dates at a bus stop if she thought I looked hungry, the way the produce tasted incredible, it was the best I'd ever tasted, the tomatoes tasted like tomatoes, the grapes tasted like grapes, it had never occurred to me how they hadn't previously. I loved the hyper-specific political factions. The way the whole attitude of the town changed with its religion. The storytelling, the bloviating, the bullshitting, the dancing, the fighting, the music, the Syrian ice cream, the drinking, the not drinking, the smoking, though I didn't like breathing the smoke. The beauty and terror of every day, of not knowing what kind of world I was waking up to, let alone what car I was getting into. Hussein absorbed my response silently. Even at rest, he seemed to stew with a broad-based resentment towards all human existence. Are you surprised? I asked. Yes, kind of, he said. As we passed through every village, he would tell me the name and a little bit about its demographic. Americans are not so nice, he said. They don't say hello to their neighbors, they don't socialize. They don't go to Habouche, take a Nescafe together, have a chat. Yes, it's a deeply atomized society, I said. With my robotic way of speaking, I felt I was proving his point. As we ascended higher towards the mountain, the conversation turned political. The car protested every kilometer. Hussein pointed over my shoulder into the distance. That's where Israel was. Right there. Shooting, shooting. He made a finger gun with his right hand and made pew, 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 pew sounds with it. Have you been to Israel? He asked me. He pronounced the operative word with evident disgust. No, I haven't. Have you? Me? Been to Israel? The very thought repulsed him. No, I've been in Hezbollah. Are you married? He asked suddenly. Apparently there is a direct line between the Arab-Israeli conflict and my marital status. No, I said. No, he repeated. Why not? I'm young, I said. You're young, I know. But you're not that young. You don't have long. I know women, he said. They never get married because I don't like the color of his eyes or I don't like his friends. He imitated an annoying high-pitched girly voice. But now their time has gone. No one wants them. They stay at home and they will die there. No one talks to them. No one. I really wasn't interested in getting into a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate about the woman question with a potential terrorist, so I let him speak his piece undisputed. 
When you went from being in a third world country to an affluent American exurb, you knew you'd arrived at the Hezbollah War Museum. Full name, Tourist Landmark of the Resistance. Suddenly the road was wide and nicely paved, with well-tended curvatures of green grass fringing the curb. The massive million-dollar parking lot was nearly empty, though, and so Hussein parked us right in front. How long are you going to take? Hussein asked, as if I'd already overstayed my limit. I'm not sure, I said. I haven't even been in yet. An hour? An hour and a half, he pressed. An hour and a half, I said, like I could know. Okay. I'll be waiting for you. Do you want to take half the payment now? I asked. No, pay me it all later, he said with an agitated wave. At odds with his brusque demeanor was his gentlemanly way of escorting me to the ticket window. The man behind the counter was excited to see a foreign visitor. It was like Hussein was showing me off to him. Where are you from? The man asked. Washington, D.C., I said, a response I'd gotten used to reciting. Oh, Washington! Welcome, welcome! He said it with that familiar wide-eyed look that never grew less perplexing to me. I had been unsure about how I would be treated in this environment, hence the modest get-up. Now I considered adding the headscarf. Hussein loitered behind me as I paid my 4,000 lira in cash only for admittance and walked into the entrance. He followed me. You get in for free? I asked. Oh yeah, they know me here, he said with repressed pride. Okay, bathrooms are over there. This is where I leave you. Thanks, Hussein, I said, thinking these words might finally shoo him off. An hour and a half, he instilled in me like a dying relative's last words. I gave him a non-committal nod and walked away. The first thing you run across is a video game simulator where you can shoot down Israeli soldiers using, quote, real weapons, unquote, as the advertisement noted with glee. Even when you are virtually killing people, it is apparently more appealing if the weapons you're holding are real. It costs 7,000 lira, but putting aside the price tag, I was not about to jostle for my place in that line. Besides, Hussein and his stopwatch probably wouldn't have liked it very much. I meant to take a quick trip to the bathroom my handsome escort had pointed out, but backed off when I realized that it was a mere squatty potty. They'd clearly blown all their cash on making an impression in the parking lot before remembering to install toilets. The museum was light on information, but heavy on artillery. I kept walking around waiting for the part where the history of the organization or the mission would be explained, but it never materialized. The main exhibit room featured a wall-sized graphic representing the structure of the Israeli military. As I walked over to get a closer look, I realized that I was treading on the uniforms of dead Israeli soldiers. I'm serious. The floor contained glass-enclosed displays of helmets, weapons, Kevlar vests. If you look closely, you could even make out strands of human hair. Also in the room was the wax figure of Hassan Nasrallah. Hezbollah's secretary general stands atop a red velvet roped-off stage, with an arrangement of fake flowers circling the base of his feet. Visitors are encouraged to pose with him for a Kodak moment to cherish for a lifetime. Outside, there was a giant fenced-off pit filled with an artfully arranged spiral of tanks and other large weaponry. Signs along the walkway contained thoughtful, mature slogans like, Israel is undefeated? No. A man with a missing leg. Perhaps he was a Hezbollah fighter? 
and a selfie stick came up to me and asked where I was from. He looked so eager as these words departed his lips. Washington, D.C., I said, trying to be a good sport. Maybe I should start wearing the city's name on a name tag, I thought. Ah, welcome, he said, before leaning in for a selfie with me. I smiled through my confusion. Didn't these people know that they were personas non grata from sea to shining sea? Why were they so flipping happy about an American visitor? After the labyrinth walk of doom, the museum guided you down a path of resistance fighters as they battled for the sanctity of their homeland. With the breezy mountain air, chirping birds, and pleasant flora, this woodland path would almost have been romantic, were it not for the dummies of Hezbollah soldiers and various munitions tucked between the trees. There were donation boxes everywhere, not in just one place near the front or at the end, just in case you were moved to donate four or five times along the route of resistance. The boxes were shaped like ammo. At least you couldn't complain that you didn't know where your money was going. There were also speakers hidden in the scenery. They played fairly convincing sound effects of gunfire going off and people screaming orders. Or screaming in pain, I couldn't really be sure. This charming meander led out onto a rose garden fluttering with butterflies and a prayer to the martyrs. Another symbolic staircase wound upwards until you arrived at a giant flag of Lebanon that flapped in the wind and an overlook of the entire complex and Mount Hermon beyond. When I turned my back on the beautiful scenery I had been admiring, I found myself face to face with Hussein. Are you done now? He asked me. I need a few more minutes, I said, as charmingly as I could. He looked at me like I'd just belted out Israel's national anthem. Okay, he said finally. I wanted to raid the gift shop for an appropriate souvenir. I wasn't much of a trinket girl, but if there was anywhere I wanted to commemorate having the balls to venture to, it was here. I paid 5,000 lira to the man behind the counter for a magnet with Hassan Nasrallah's face on it. They also sold large, framed portraits with the identical image, but I thought that might be slightly conspicuous coming back through Dallas airport. Shukran, I told the man as he handed me the receipt. Yes, Habibi, he said. Hussein was hovering outside the door to the shop as I left. He'd been tracking my movements with military precision this whole time. It must have been something he learned from visiting this museum so many times. Are you ready to go now? he asked. Yes, I said, as if I really had a choice at this point. Did you see everything you wanted? he asked me as we walked out into the parking lot. His tone lay somewhere in the demilitarized zone between ironic and sincere. Yes, I said. I could have easily gone through the whole museum a second time, spending hours analyzing the wording of every sign, but I'd taken a ton of photos that I could review later. Hussein lit up a Cedars Plus after asking if he could smoke. Do you want one? he asked. No, thank you, I replied. Do you have a boyfriend? he asked. He really excelled at the surprising non sequiturs. I did, but he turned out to be a smoker. Hussein did not interpret this as a joke. He was stunned into silence for a moment, then asked, What? No, I don't have a boyfriend, I said. I thought of Habib, who I had arguably come to Lebanon for, and who I had dinner plans with later that night, but in no way could I stretch the truth enough to consider him my boyfriend. Hussein had, in the meantime, taken another drag of his Cedars Plus, so that his mouth now erupted in smoke and laughter. Why are you laughing? I asked. Do you have a husband? No. 
Do you have a boyfriend? No. Again, he cackled. What do you have? He asked, mystified. I have a Hezbollah magnet, I said, brandishing the souvenir in question. Hussein looked at it. He's a good match for you, Hussein said, laughing horrifically. For as charmless and curmudgeonly as Hussein was, his words still stung me. I knew I was not some kind of cardigan-wearing spinster character, living only for the next packet in my tea advent calendar. I felt like I had all of Hamra and most of Acrefe swinging from my nuts, but it was still humbling to have my self-image punctured by a terrace cabbie. Perhaps sensing I wanted to change the subject, Hussein began ranting about the government, as all of his countrymen were liable to do if left alone with a foreigner for long enough. What do we get? Nothing, he said. Other countries, the government works for the people. Here, the people work for the government. I wondered what countries he could possibly mean. Life is hard. Life is hard in Lebanon. I let him go on and on while I stared out the window, surveying the empty shops and half-built houses of village after village. He screeched to a halt when we arrived back at Habush Bridge. Hussein didn't seem concerned about going easy on his ancient breaks. Okay, now you pay, he instructed. I was aware of the routine. I had two 20,000 lira notes, so I handed him them both. Strangely, he took his wad of cash and kissed it repeatedly, pressing it to his lips and going, Mwah, 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 mwah. He would take short breaks to lift the wad of cash up toward the heavens and then return to shower it with uncharacteristic love and tenderness yet again. I had no idea what that was about. I'd paid untold numbers of taxi drivers by that point, and none had resorted to this, so I calmly shut the passenger side door and departed. I thought I'd probably have to wait beside the bridge for a while before a van or a bus passed through, but there was an empty one waiting when I arrived. Blessedly, if the last car you got out of was crazy, there was always another ready to whisk you off into the future. It might not be better, but at least it wouldn't be the same. I leaned into the window and asked, Beirut? Saida? The driver looked young, in his late teens or early twenties, much younger than the usual weather-beaten soul at the helm of these vehicles. Saida, he said with a sigh, as if apologizing that he wasn't hip or urban enough to drive a van into Beirut. I could make it work. I hopped in, feeling triumphant. The van started speeding off towards our seaside destination, as I struggled to pull the door shut against the force of the wind. Drivers didn't wait to leave until you were safely seated. I looked down to my right shoulder, and saw that in closing the door I'd ripped half the arm off my shirt. But I had a Hezbollah magnet. By God, I had a Hezbollah magnet. for listening to Have We Met Before. Join me again in two weeks for an unwanted flower delivery from a Russian oligarch. 
theme music composed by John Hookstra. <laughs>